The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Good morning, church. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 4. Man, that was a lot of announcements, huh? Holiday season. It's busy, right? Um, I don't know what in the world is going on, but I'm already sick for the second time this fall season. So uh, I'm going to try real hard to preach without losing my voice or coughing and sniffling into the microphone so much that it just disgusts you. But no promises is what I'm saying. Um, Will you do me a favor, Luke chapter 4, and join me on your feet for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in verse 16 through 30 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, just stick a hand up and uh, someone will make sure that you get one. Sorry, I forgot to say that. Luke 4 verse 16 says this, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as was his custom. He went to synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll, the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do there in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath, the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I just pray that you would speak to us this morning, Lord, and prepare our hearts. Lord, I pray that you and your spirit would would just come through and speak to your people so that this morning this is not just an information dump. It's not just new things we're learning for knowledge's sake, but that you would change us. I pray, God, that you would just break down things that keep us from walking in your grace and your love and your mercy. I pray, God, your spirit would awaken our affections for you and that we would respond to the call Lord, that you are calling us to walk with you, to follow you, to spread your gospel around. And I I just pray, God, you would grant us understanding of your word this morning that it might produce that fruit in our lives. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. amen. You guys can have a seat. 
So, what makes a good sermon? Um, there's a lot of things that might make a good sermon. Pastor Sam, I thought, gave us a great sermon last week. If you were here last week, yes, he did. Um, Pastor Sam shared with us about the temptation of Christ. That was a great sermon. Um, we've heard great sermons before. We've heard bad sermons before. We'll see what this one is. But what, what are characteristics that you would say make a sermon good or great? I, I think there's some biblical things that matter for sure. I think biblical accuracy matters. Um, I don't care how well you're presenting. If you're not presenting biblical truth, you might be given a great speech, but it's not a great sermon. Um, I, I think clarity of delivery is important because you might speak the truth, but if you do it in such a way that no one's tracking with you, then what's the point of that? So I think that's important. Um, I think gospel centrality is important. Because I don't think good biblical sermons are just moral teachings. I think that they, they elevate Christ and point us to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's important. Um, I think relevance to the listener. I think you need to know your audience when you're teaching. And you need to be able to bring things to bear on the lives of the people that are listening to you. Um, but there's also all sorts of things that, that depending on who you ask, they're, they're just really objective some people like humor in their sermons. Some people like jokes in their sermons and they like something that kind of keeps them interesting, keeps things light from time to time. Some people though are the exact opposite of that and believe that it's sinful almost to put jokes into a sermon because they, their position or their personal opinion is that that, that uh, shows a lack of reverence for God's word. There, there's some people that they want intensely personal stuff. They're like, man, you haven't preached if I'm not crying. And they want to hear like, intensely personal stories that just get them in the soul and they want emotion and, and all of those kind of things. And other people are wired a little bit differently. They just want, they just want logical walk through the scripture kind of stuff. It's really, really different. And one thing I've learned for sure in now nine and a half years of preaching here and pastoral ministry for about 15 years now, um, man, it's all over the place. And sometimes people are looking for things in sermons that aren't supposed to be what we're looking for in sermons. I I had someone many years ago um, approach me. We were going through a really difficult section of scripture at that time. And um, it was challenging passages. There's no way around that. There was no way to soften the things that were said. And we're just preaching through the scriptures there. And, and this particular family, um, um, this, this man met with me to let, let me know that they were moving on. They were going to be going to a different church and, um, and that they were uh, upset about the way the preaching was going and some different things like that. And, and uh, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, um, I just want to take my family somewhere where, where we can hear um, God's word preached and, and after the sermons, we feel good about ourselves and we don't have to do anything. And I was like, well, heritage is not the place for you. Um, and I don't think most of the New Testament is either. I mean, don't read Paul, whatever you do, don't read Paul. But actually, you might not want to read some of Jesus's sermons either. Today, we have Jesus's first sermon. This is first public ministry. He's going to preach a sermon here. He's going to give exposition of this particular text. And if we were looking at it 
as he was like a church planner, let's say someone heritage had sent out to go plant a church and, and they had their first ever service. And I went to watch this new preacher preach his first sermon at a church that we were supporting. And I came back the next week and you were like, Jeff, how did it go? And if I told you that the reaction of the people was the reaction that's happening here in this text, you would go, Ooh, swing and a miss. Well, uh, let's let coach him up or something, Jeff. Like let's, let's do something better. But that's not what happens here. Jesus' first sermon steps on toes. And what's really interesting about it, 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 at first it doesn't step on toes. And it's like Jesus realizes, oh, then you don't get it. Let me fix that. And then they don't like it. That's the first sermon we have here of Jesus Christ, his ministry. Now, there's some, this is an important sermon, and this text is particularly important. It's important we do a little bit of background work to understand what Jesus is teaching. It's going to help us understand what's happening in this text. Um, the particular passage that Jesus is teaching from is in Isaiah chapter 61, and he actually references this text again later in the gospel accounts. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has a question for Jesus regarding this particular text. And the context of this is John the Baptist. Remember, he's the forerunner of Christ, right? He's the guy that goes first. He's the one that prepares the way. He's like um, the, the primary player in the ministry of Jesus at this point. And yet at Matthew chapter 11, he's in jail. He's in prison. And he's not going to get out. And so as he's there, he's struggling. The text actually says this. If you guys will put it up. Matthew chapter 11 says this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Um, that's going to be an appropriate sentence considering our sermon today. Blessed is the one who's not offended. Now, now what, what's happening in this text? John the Baptist is not a dummy. And he's not vainly selfish. He's struggling. And he's really struggling to come to grips with who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Because John the Baptist knows Isaiah 61, the very text that Jesus responds with. And in Isaiah 61, there's a really key phrase that's super applicable to John the Baptist in this moment. It says that when the Messiah comes, he comes to set the captives free. And here's John the Baptist in prison. And he's thinking about this like... This is the Messiah, Redeemer, King, and his ministry doesn't seem to look like I thought it was always going to look. And um, I'm reading some of these texts, I'm reading these prophecies here about what the Messiah is going to do. I know, I'm a good Hebrew guy, I know my Jewish scriptures, and I'm reading this stuff and it says, proclaim liberty to the captives, and I'm, I'm, I'm your forerunner, man. And here I sit, and the ministry doesn't seem to be taken off, and we don't seem to be seeing a lot of things changed out there in the world around us. So he's starting to struggle. And he's like, well, maybe, maybe it's not him. Maybe we messed up. Maybe we missed something. Like what, what is going on? And so he sends word like, are you him? And so Jesus responds by going through that very text and saying, hey, tell John the Baptist what you see. 
And he goes through and he points out some very significant things. He points out four things um, in here that every time someone has an actual encounter with the living, true God, that when we encounter Jesus, there's four things that always, always happen. There's four results of the ministry, if you will, of Jesus Christ in this day and in this day. And so the things that he does, he says this, first of all, he says the blind see, talks about the blind seeing. And it doesn't just mean that those without sight suddenly gain sight. It doesn't just mean that he fixes eyes. What it means is in that day and to this day, when Jesus comes in and, and we have an actual encounter, when the, the heart has been changed by the gospel, there's, it's as if we were blind before and now we see. We see who we are, honestly. Like we really understand who we are. Not, not who we convinced ourselves that we've been for a long time, but we see the truth. We see who he is. We see what he's doing. We see the world differently. And, and so the, the analogy there is, it's as if we were blind before, and now we suddenly see everything. The blind see. Uh, lepers are cleansed. He mentions lepers being cleansed. You got to understand the context there. Lepers, um, there, it wasn't just that you were sick with leprosy, but there was a whole thing that kind of came with that. Like you, if you had leprosy, it, it's not like you just stayed home or avoided people or, you know, covered your mouth when you coughed. Like you were, you were kicked out of the house. You're kicked out of the church. You're kicked out of the city. You lived outside the walls of the city that you're in. And you were looked at with such disdain that everywhere you walked, if people were around, you had to shout out unclean, unclean. You're literally broadcasting to everyone you come into contact with that you are unacceptable unclean and that no one can come in your presence. And so when he's talking about the ministry of the Messiah, that lepers are cleansed, it, it's not just that some lepers in these New Testament stories get healed. It's that when we have an actual encounter with Jesus Christ and he changes our hearts, we suddenly see that where we were once absolutely unclean and unable to stand before a perfect and holy God, we now are suddenly clean and justified by the righteousness of Jesus. Not because we worked harder, not because we cleaned ourselves up. There was nothing a leper could do. It was an act of God that changes our position before him. And we suddenly realize I was, I was filthy, but now I'm clean. I'm standing before God based on his righteousness. He talks about the dead being raised. And again, that's not just resurrections, though that did happen. It's not even just the eventual resurrection that will one day happen, but it's about the reality that when the gospel affects your life and the spirit of God moves on a man, it's not that we just got better. It's not that we got our act together. It's that we were dead and the spirit of God moved on us and we are made alive. Christians are not people that got their act together and got better. Christians are people that died and have been born again by the spirit of God into a new life. And the old man is dead. The old desires are dead. And we still wrestle with things for sure, but our affections are now set on Christ because of what he has done for us. And that old way of living is gone. It is dead. We've been raised again with Christ, Colossians says. That's what happens when God moves. 
Well, that's three things. I mean, and they all seem to have some similarities. They're talking about these kind of miraculous things, tying it into like uh, body issues, if you will, diseases, things like that. But then there's this fourth one that gets thrown in, in both accounts that doesn't seem to fit in the same way with the rest of them. He says, and the poor have good news preached to them. What does that mean? Why all of a sudden are we talking about poverty? Like it was these physical things and physical ailments and now like money comes into it and poor and poverty. Like what is all of that? that? And you go, well, no, that makes sense because once your heart's been changed, you want to go do good things for people and do good deeds. Well, I mean, okay, but this isn't just like some byproduct, understand. The way that he upholds these things in the scriptures, he's saying this is just as intrinsically important as all of those other things. That it's unavoidable, it's part of it just as much as justification, just as much as new life. This is part of it, and it just seems not to fit, at least on the surface. Well, in Jesus' sermon today, we get some insight into why that is. And I'm going to warn you, it stomps on toes. It's going to stomp on toes in here. Some of you will be upset. Some of you won't like the things that are said. I'm going to challenge you, though, but... Do heart work on that. Go to the Lord and ask why. Go to the scriptures and say, what's going on here? In this particular account, it's kind of broken into three different stages. We get Jesus' sermon, we get the people's reaction, um, and then we get Jesus' fixing of the reaction as he actually explains his his sermon and the resultant chaos that comes out of that. So let's take a look at it here in Luke chapter 4. It tells us the beginning, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as was his custom, and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, in that day, you go to the Sabbath, like our equivalent, I guess, to some degree of like going to church. Good Jewish people would go to, go to the Sabbath or, or go to synagogue on Sabbath, and they would all come in there, and the person who was teaching, in this case it was Jesus, would take the scroll, and they would read the text that they were going to do, they would put it away, and then they would sit down, and the congregation would be standing largely, and the person that's teaching or expounding would be the one that's sitting down. So in an effort to make heritage more biblical, if you guys would, I'm going to have you guys all stand up, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to preach. I'm just joking, like no one's buying. That went over way better in the 830 service. But, um, and, it's still, and I can't do that, because then you would go, okay, if you're going to be more biblical, Jeff, uh, Jesus' sermon was like two sentences long, so shut up already. Um, so we're not, we're not going to do that. But, um, but this is what would happen. So Jesus comes in and, and he's there to speak and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. Now, it's a really significant, important text that Jesus comes to. Popular in the Jewish culture at that time, though mysterious as well. It's one that's referred to as one of the servant of the Lord texts. And you really have to understand the Jewish mindset and some of their history to do this. And I'm not going to take us through painstaking detail, but you've got to remember. So the Jewish people, the nation of Israel at this time, had been told all the way back in Genesis 12, I'm going to make a nation out of you. You are my chosen people. And I'm going to use you, Israel, to, to bless the world. You are going to be my prophets. You're going to be my missionaries. I'm going to use this nation in the world. And then over and over and over going through the scriptures, there, there's this kind of prophetic promises from God that seem to build on them. I mean, you get even into 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he's like, there's going to be a king that I'm going to raise up through your kingdom. Just like you, David, I'm going to set up a kingdom. I'm going to establish his throne forever. 
His kingdom will never end. And then you go, okay, but what was Israel's actual experience like? Far from that. Because not long after that promise, Israel fractures, and they're barely even in charge of themselves ever again in the scriptures. They get carried away by the Assyrians. They get carried away by the Babylonians. They've got Herod and Idumean king in control of them now. And now at this point in the story with Christ, it's Rome that rules the world. And so Israel has been struggling with all this stuff, but this prophecy has been unfolding as well through this time that I'm going to raise up this servant of the Lord. This Messiah deliverer is going to come and he's going to make everything right. And so the people of Israel are constantly waiting on this Messiah to come. So when Jesus comes and he opens this, this text, it's about that promised Messiah. So it's a text that the Jewish people long for, maybe in the same ways that some of us read about heaven one day. And, and it says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now imagine that. Like someone comes in and they read that text that every Israeli person since the days they've been written has studied and prayed over and longed for. And they read that text and you're expecting another sermon that talks about it and how it all is going to play out and all this stuff. But he sits down this time, someone you know, sits down this time and says, I'm here. It's me. Good news. You would think based on what we know about eventual reactions that the Jewish people have, even the fact that one day Jesus is going to be killed for claiming to be God, you would think they would be super upset. That's not what happens in this sermon. They love it. They're happy. They're like, this is great. Look what it says. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So there's some puzzling for sure. Like, he's, it, it's you? Joseph's kid, well, I'm, all right, whatever, man. Let's get some hammers and let's do this thing, man. I didn't expect a carpenter, but let's do this. Like they're, they're excited and they really, really like it. So why are they so happy about that news? What is it that makes them so excited? Here's what you got to remember. And this plays in massively in what Jesus is going to now fix. The Jewish mindset as they're hearing these things and as they think about Messiah, and as they think about the reality around them and the difficulty and when will we be delivered and all those kind of things, the Jewish mindset is this. We're good people. We're at synagogue where we're supposed to be. We're studying God's word like we're supposed to do. We're here every Sabbath. We've got God's law. We follow God's law to the best of our ability. We're God's chosen people. We've got the sacrifices. We do the offerings. We're good people. They are bad people. The Romans who oppress us are bad people. They always have us under their thumb. They're pagans. They're sexually immoral. They're deviants. Caesar calls himself God. That's blasphemy. They're bad people. And the Messiah's coming. 
But who do they think the Messiah is coming for? For them. Messiah's going to come. We're the good people, and Messiah's going to come and flip all of this around. He's going to vindicate us, the good people of God, and he's going to eradicate and bring vengeance on these bad people that have been after us all this time. We get the Messiah. That's what they've been thinking. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knew that they didn't understand it because they liked it. Imagine that. He preaches that first sermon. He makes the statement and they're like excited. And he's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. You don't understand. Let me, I, I know you don't understand because you're happy. And so he actually fixes. One thing you see through scriptures, you're going to see this over and over and over. When people who consider themselves good people hear and understand the gospel message of Jesus Christ, they are always angry. They are always angry in scripture every single time. When self-believing good people hear and understand the message that's coming, their reaction is anger. In fact, in this text, as he fixes this in a minute, it's going to say that they responded with wrath, which wrath is a little bit even beyond anger, right? Like I've gotten angry. I've never, never carried a guy to table rock to throw him off the cliff. But that's what happens. And so Jesus knows they don't get it because they actually like it. So he goes, okay, okay. And he sits down to explain them. And in verses 25 through 27, here's what he's telling them. He's going, okay, um, I've come to preach the good news to the poor, but you don't seem to understand who the poor is. So I need to fix that. And so he's going to spend verse 25, 26, and 27 fixing their understanding of who Messiah is coming for, and it's going to infuriate them. So he says, verse 25, We'll start verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. It's interesting. He hasn't been to Capernaum yet. What is it that he's done? Verse 24, he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What do you mean not acceptable? Jesus, you're in your hometown. You just preached a sermon. Everybody's all happy about it. But listen, verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a slave. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a cliff on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So God protects him in this. They're going to get him eventually, aren't they? But not yet. And it's interesting to think about how that might have played out. You ever see like the Bugs Bunny Road Runner, Runner skits and there'll be like a big fight. And there's just a big cloud of dust and Bugs Bunny just kind of steps out and like, all right, just let them do their thing, kind of walks out. I don't know how this actually worked, but Jesus is preserved. And in the fury and wrath of all these people, he's able to walk right through their midst and walk out. But why are they so angry? Why is it that he can point to a widow and Naaman, a leper, and those two references without even explanation took them from, yes, it's him, to 
kill him. What happens there? Well, let's take a look at this. Here's what you need to understand. As Jesus is doing this, as he's pointing these things out, he's doing it to help them understand who the poor are that the Spirit has anointed him to proclaim good news to. Remember, the Spirit is upon me to preach the good news to the poor. So who are the poor that he's taking good news to? He's like, okay, so here's what I'm going to point to to help you guys figure this out. And he points to Naaman, and he points to this widow. And in this, he's going to show us three things that occur over and over and over in the gospel, three things that we can understand about this. You have to understand who the poor are to understand Jesus. This is what he's saying. If you want to understand why I came who I came for, and what I'm doing here, you need to understand also who the poor are. So three things that it teaches us, and we'll unpack them. The the first is the gospel is only for the spiritually poor. The gospel is only for the spiritually poor. Number two, the gospel is especially for the actual poor. And number three, the gospel only comes through those who are willing to be both. So let me show you what these means. Let's look at the first one here. The gospel is only for the spiritually poor. They're spiritually poor. Now, it's obvious right out the gate, if you know the stories here, and we don't have the time to go back into Kings and unpack all of them, but it's obvious if you understand these stories at all, that Jesus, when he brings up two different examples, he can't just be talking about poverty because of the two people he pointed out, one is poor, one is rich. So it can't just be a financial issue that we're talking about here. Um, He's talking about spiritually poor. He's talking about moral outcasts. He's talking about those that they would consider what? Bad people. So we don't have time to go through the stories, like I said, but let me just share with you a couple of uh, uh, characteristics of the two people that are mentioned. The widow, for example. She's visited by the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17. And here's some things about her. She's a Gentile. She's not Jewish. She's an idol worshiper. She's a heretic. She's poor. She's a woman, which was an outcast at the time. And she is on the outside of all religious and moral standards that the Jewish people held dear. There's nothing about her that would endear her to the Jewish people at all. And everything about her would cause them to kick her out. That's who Elijah was sent to. Only her. Then there's Naaman. Naaman the king in 2 Kings chapter 5, visited by the prophet Elisha. Some things about here. Him, he's an enemy. He's a murderer. He's an idol worshiper. He puts people in slavery. He's an example of the kind of oppressive leaders that have been tormenting Israel for years and years and years and years. And though he is rich, he is also, according to the Jewish beliefs at that time and to the scriptures at that time, he's a moral outcast. There's nothing about him that would endear him to Israel. They have every reason to hate him. And think about what Jesus says. I'm only coming for those that are the moral outcasts, the spiritually bankrupt, people like Naaman, people like that widow. That's who I'm coming for. And and in fact, he really doubles down on it because he says, I'm only coming for them. He says, there were widows everywhere. I only came for that one. There's lepers everywhere. I 
only came for that one. There were, there were moral good people struggling with the famine that was going on at that time all over the place that Elijah could have gone to. He only went to that one. Now think about what he's doing here. Jesus, that is. He's in the, he's in the synagogue. He's standing in front of this, these people. Or he's sitting in front of these people as he's teaching. And he's actively comparing them to these people right in front of them. And, and what he's saying to them, and they understand it, he's saying, it's not you. I didn't come here for you. I'm the Messiah. Yay, the Messiah came. Oh, 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 careful. I didn't come for you. I came for them. For who? The bad people. The immoral people. Those people. He's literally saying, that's who I came for. And they understand this, and it's why they want to kill him. So here's something that we see in Scripture that we've probably at times experienced in our own life and in relationships with others at times. Those who would, um, would consider themselves good, moralistic, religious people, those who would consider themselves good, moralistic, religious people, when God does something outside of their frame of understanding or expectation that shatters that framework, they always respond with anger. And this is what I mean by that. These are good people, and Jesus just showed up in front of them and basically said, I don't owe you anything. I'm not coming for you. And, and what does that even mean? So think, let me give you another story. Maybe it'll help you understand. The prodigal son. What's the story of the prodigal son? There was a son, two sons, same father. One of them says to the father, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I, I'm, I don't want to be in the household anymore. I want my inheritance. I want what's coming to me. I want what's mine, and I'm out of here. And so he gets it, takes the money, runs off, lives with riotous living, prostitutes, all of that kind of stuff, and makes an absolute mess of his life. And then he comes to what understanding? He's completely broke, completely bankrupt. He has nothing. He doesn't even have an inheritance to expect anymore. And he says, it was better to be a slave in the house of that father than to live where I am right now. And so he returns and he comes home with nothing to offer, just to throw himself on the mercy of his father and beg for help and forgiveness. And his father sees him and runs out to him. He's so excited. You guys know the story, right? He runs out to him and hugs him and he says what? My son is back. Get the fatted calf. Get our best cow. Kill it. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to have a party. Put a robe back on him, which symbolized his inclusion in the family. Put rings back on his fingers. It shows who he is. All of this stuff. My son is back. But then there's the other son, and he's watching this whole thing happen. And do you remember his response? He watches this party happen. He's watching his father act in, in such a way that he believes is not justified. And what does he say to his father? I have always been here doing what's right. And you've never done anything like this for me. What's he saying? I deserve this. I earned this, not him. I've been good, I've been here, I've done this, you've never done any of this stuff for me, I deserve this. See, there's two ways the story teaches us to rebel against God. One, we rebel against God through outright obvious rebellion that says, I want nothing to do with you anymore. That's the younger son. But the more damning, in many cases, way of rebelling against God is actually through obedience. In such a way that says, 
you owe me. I've done everything right, and now you owe me. And so when people that have that mindset, whether they mean to have it or not, when life goes sideways, when things happen, they will often react with anger going, I don't deserve this. I've earned better than this. You should bless my life. You should bless my finances. You should bless all this stuff because I've been doing everything right. But what they're doing is they're putting God into a subservient position as if God somehow owes them. Now, spiritually poor people understand something a little bit different. Like they might go, you know what? There were times that I obeyed and there were times that I didn't. But the one thing that was true, no matter what, I never wanted him to be in charge. Even the good things I did, I, don't want, I didn't want God running my life. I didn't want Jesus leading me. I wanted to lead me. And spiritually bankrupt, spiritually poor people understand that. They look beyond mere obedience into motives of the heart. And the other thing, spiritually poor people realize, I have nothing to offer him. I need a gift. So the the first son, when he comes home, he's not like, but I did the best I could and I tried to make it up and here's some things I brought. I know it's nothing, but I did the No, there's none of that. There is come home empty, bankrupt, poor, and just throwing yourself at the feet of the father and begging for his mercy. A spiritually bankrupt person understands the only hope they have is mercy. And that's all. And that's why Jesus will teach in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are the people that are killing it. Not blessed are the okay. Not blessed are the mostly good. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt who have nothing to offer. Those are the people that are going to receive the kingdom of God. Man, that's an offensive thing to someone who's built their life believing that they're good enough. In fact, that's why the gospel is often offensive. Tim Keller says, if you've never been offended by the gospel, then you've never heard it. So the gospel is for the spiritually bankrupt, the people that understand that even our best righteous acts, as Isaiah will also say, are filthy rags. We need a gift. We need the grace and mercy of God. And there is no such thing as a track record that will earn favor before God. There are no cosmic scales that we can somehow balance out. We are dead in our sin and we need the grace and mercy of God to bring us back to life. The gospel is only for the spiritually bankrupt. Amen? Some of you are already upset with me. The next one is this. This one's tough too. The gospel's especially for the actually poor. The gospel's especially for the actually poor. Now, here's something you'll see over and over and over in the gospels and the New Testament accounts and even in history. Um, when there's a poor person and a rich person together and God moves, something happens. It's always the poor person that gets it first. When there's a woman and there's a man, it's the woman that gets it first. When, when there's a master and a slave, it's the slave that gets it first. 
It's the person in poverty. It's the person who's, we sang it just a minute ago, didn't we? The poor and powerless over and over and over in the gospel accounts. That's what happens. In the Bible, there's seven different resurrections. In all but one of them, it's a woman receiving the joy of the resurrection. And it's a man who was the position of power at the time, sitting over to the side going, I don't even get this. Why is that? Why does that happen that way? Keller says this, God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty has arranged things so that people in this world who have been pushed out of power and influence are more likely to understand the message of the gospel than those who do not. People that have been pushed out of positions of power and influence are more apt to readily understand the message of the gospel than those who don't. Why? Why is that? It's not because one is more savable than others. It's not because poor people sin less than rich people. It's not because uh, um, God only wants one and not the other. That's not the case. Why is it? It's because the doctrine of grace is that you are only saved by losing power to a Savior who set his aside. And so there's a natural understanding of what it means to be powerless and of the need to have someone act on your behalf. And this just seems to work out this way. Notice in our text, by the way, when he quotes Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, if you were to go to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and read it, you would notice Jesus stopped mid-sentence. He didn't quote the entire passage. He stopped in the middle, which you wouldn't do. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do that. Why would he do that? Because the next thing he was about to say, if he were to quote the whole thing, would say to bring vengeance to which the Jewish people in that room would have been like, yes, bring it, vengeance, let's do this. Like that's what they've been waiting for. They've been waiting for God to avenge them and to defeat all those bad people that are keeping us down all the time. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm not coming to do that. I don't have a sword in my hand right now, not this time. I'm gonna have nails in my hand and my power is gonna be set aside because I've come to save So who are the ones that are most readily going to be the ones that actually understand that? Those that are pushed out of positions of importance. Their hearts are already in a position where where you're almost conditioned to more readily accept that. They seem to have a quicker understanding of grace. And there's an example for this. (coughs) This was years ago. uh, A whole study got done about understandings of success and things like that. Um, sort of accidentally in the 90s, um, there was a, a, a politician in the 90s who came and spoke somewhere in New England to a group of African-American pastors. Um, it was some sort of a black preacher's caucus, something like that. And there was a, a politician at the time, wealthy white politician, who came to speak to this particular, it's, it's his voter base, so it's what you do. So he comes to speak to them. But he said something that actually generated a little bit of controversy and actually caused a whole sociological study to come out of it. He said to them, isn't it great that we live in a nation where if you're willing to work hard, it doesn't matter how poor you are when you got here, you can make it and be rich even. Now remember what I said? You need to know your audience when you're preaching. Because his father was Irish. And so here's these black preachers in the room going, hmm, okay. Well, my ancestors came to America about the same time yours did. And they worked hard, 20 hours a day under the whip. They didn't get rich. Know your audience when you preach. But here's what happened 
as that kind of got studied and looked at, they noticed, now this is not a hard, fast rule, but, but it is to some degree. It's certainly a, a generalization, but it's a statistical norm. Those who have made it have a much higher percent chance of looking at their personal successes as this is what I did. I did this. I worked hard. I did this. I, I, grit. I made it. But those who are poor, those who struggle, seem to have a much easier ability to look back and notice the graces in their life. To notice the things that were actually outside of their control that played in to where they actually are. So, what are we saying about this? We are not villainizing the rich or spiritualizing the poor. But what we are saying, you have to understand this, throughout the history of the world and through the history of Christianity, you can go study it and look at it throughout the, Christianity spread throughout the entire known world. And no matter what, everywhere you look at it, ethnic minorities grasp the gospel before majorities. Women grasp the gospel before men. Poor grasp the gospel before rich over and over and over. And then notice this. What's the response of the world when you say that? They say, it's proof it's not true. Because if they were smart and educated and understood, they wouldn't be holding on to some weak sauce philosophy like they need a crutch to lean on. The world will point to that as an example as why the gospel's wrong. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's proof it's true. You know why we need a crutch? Because our legs are broken. And so to understand the gospel coming to the powerless people in the world, absolutely Jesus preached to the poor and powerless. It, it, it doesn't overly spiritualize either one, but it does explain why Jesus would say things like, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Wealth, success, power, influence, all of those things have ways of becoming their own gods because they become your own provision, they become your own security, they become your way of doing everything, and you don't seem to need the crutch anymore. It's why we should be concerned about the poor. It's why we should be among the poor, to remember and understand those things and to be reminded of our own spiritual poverty, those of us who aren't financially poor, if you will, at this time. The gospel only comes for the spiritually poor. The gospel especially comes for the actual poor. And then finally, the gospel only comes through those who are willing to be both. What do you mean by that? Well, they said it themselves. This is Joseph's son. Joseph's son? The deliverer king? That's, that's not necessarily a compliment. Like they're still excited at that point when they said that. But what they're saying is, so our deliverer king came out of that nothing, nobody family in that town? They were poor. We didn't cover this too much when we looked at the dedication of Christ, but when Mary and Joseph came to the temple and offered sacrifices at the circumcision dedication of their son, Jesus, they offered two pigeons, which was the lowest of the lowest of the low 
in terms of acceptable sacrifices. It's, it's a sacrifice God had given to make provision for people that couldn't possibly afford anything. To say, even the lowest and the poorest of the poor can bring gifts to the temple because I'll accept these birds as sacrifice. But it was a symbol of poverty. And that's who he was. The son of heaven became the son of Joseph. He set his wealth aside. He set his power aside. He set his influence aside. He set all of those things aside and humbled himself to become the son of Joseph, a carpenter in the middle of nowhere in a period of time that was not easy to live, to subject himself to constant rejection, constantly being pushed out, even by his own family, and eventually death for our sake. The gospel only comes about by those who are willing to do both. And you see this in the text. So Jesus says, the spirit is upon me to do what? To preach good news to the poor. So this is the idea. Those who are spiritually bankrupt, the spirit of God comes upon you. It does a life change. You're, you're just wrecked by the gospel. You're born again. You're saved. You're from death to life. And then what is it that the spirit does in the life of a believer? It pushes you out. Go preach. Tell the good news. Go tell people. And so as we go do that, everything looks completely different. You go, but what do you mean by willing to do both? So someone who has been saved and now wants to be a vessel of the gospel in the world, you're no longer like rationalizing things like social status. You're not moralizing your social status. And what I mean by that is we can go out into the poorest neighborhoods among people who have made train wrecks of their lives, whether it was their fault or not, and we don't look down on them. We don't moralize our social standing as if we're in a place above everyone else. We look at them instead with mercy. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. Can you imagine if Christ looked down on you from heaven and said, Jeff, if you would just work harder and get your act together, you wouldn't be in this mess. How messed up and hopeless would we be? Jeff, if you would just stop being a lazy bum, if you would just stop being this, if you would stop doing this and just get your act together, then you'll be okay. Praise God. Praise God he didn't say that about me. Instead, he was like, I'm sending Jesus because you have no hope to do this on your own, Jeff. You have no hope. Apart from the Spirit of God in you, you have no shot at being good, no matter how good you think you already are. And without me coming and dying for your sins and paying the price for your rebellion against God, I can't even put the Spirit of God in you, so I'm going to do it all for you. So who am I above? Nobody. I am a recipient of a gift. And even practically, if we're talking about financial resources, when, when the gospel has moved on your life, you know what the amazing effect that the gospel has on money? Gos the gospel makes money just money. And I don't mean that it doesn't have, have value. It has immense value, of course. I mean, it doesn't, it's not about what it used to be. I mean, for so many, the, God, the money is, that's your identity. 
It's your definition of success. It's your provision. It's how you prepare for yourself. It's your protection. It's so many different things. And then the gospel comes in and your identity is now in Christ apart from all those things. And now it's just money. And you can now live in such a way that you become generous in a way that the rest of the world makes no sense. Like, why are you doing that, man? Giving money away? You could be a whole lot richer. Why are you doing that? You go, because, man, you don't know. Money may have come easy to me, but I'll tell you what didn't. I needed grace. And God looked down on me. And man, even looking at the scriptures about how the trappings of money can be, maybe I'm even more of a recipient of grace because it's even harder to get saved because of this. And yet look what God did in my life. So why wouldn't I give? Why wouldn't I support a Safeway project that goes out and makes sure we take food to people out there? Yeah, but some of them don't deserve it. They're just drug addicts and you're just going to feed them and they're going to spend their money on something else. So what? That's not my problem. That's not my call. I'm just going to show the love of grace to people that definitely, desperately need it. And I'm not going to judge people as if I would do different if I was in their position. You don't know the train wrecks I've had. And most of us, we live such shallow lives in front of so many people, not letting people know the reality of what's going on in our soul. Man, if people really knew, they'd probably look down on us. So how are we going to go look down on anyone else? We as Christians follow the example of Jesus Christ who said his prestige, he said his power, he said his influence, his resources, his money aside and humbled himself becoming poor for the sake of you and I who's now filled us with his spirit. We go from spiritual poverty to sons of God and joint heirs of everything that is Christ one day. And in the meantime, we now have the opportunity to become vessels of the gospel to the world around us by showcasing spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ. Not walking around like the religious people of Israel did, thumbing their nose, looking down at others, pulling their clothes tight because God forbid you touch a sinner. But instead understanding like, dude, that was me. I get it. But there's hope. There's hope. The Messiah came. The Deliverer King came. And guess what? He came for you. He came for you. You have nothing you can offer God. And he came for you. And we can give in such a way that shows the gifts that God has given us. And we can recognize grace in ways that other people don't get to recognize grace. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to the regenerate. It's super prickly to the religious. Because you can sit here even as I'm preaching this sermon and go, what do you know? That's not true. And we can justify all sorts of things if we want. But I would urge and beg of us that instead we would turn to some actual introspection of our own lives and go, man, where am I? Because here's the truth. That whole spiritual poverty thing has to happen over and over and over again all the time, doesn't it? We have a tendency to collect stuff as we go along. I'm spiritually poor. And then 20 years later, walking with Jesus, you're killing it now, you think, and suddenly you lose that whole spiritual poverty mindset and you can become just like the Pharisees who think you're just nailing it everywhere. And there's times where we have to stop and just go, this is not about me. My righteousness, the best things I do are filthy rags before God. And we are called to live daily 
completely dependent on his grace and righteousness. Never pointing to our own righteousness, always pointing to his and saying, if it wasn't for him, I'm dead every day. But you killed it this week. But if, I, if it wasn't for him, I'm dead every day. And so sometimes as we collect that stuff along the way, it's good to have a moment to stop, pause, and put it all back down. Amen? Let's do that for a minute. I'm going to have Sam come up. We sang that song a minute ago, All the Poor and Powerless. And it's funny how sometimes we can sing worship songs in such ways that they're just worship songs that we're just used to and we've sort of always sung. And you forget what they actually mean, what they're actually talking about. And then you come to a passage like this or a sermon like this or something and we start, oh man, that's what he's talking about. And then you sing those lines and there's a whole new meaning and even emotion behind them. But it doesn't matter. It's just vain religion if our heart's not there. So will you just take time right now just to bow your heads and say, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, is there spiritual arrogance? Is there greed? Is there pride? Am I looking down my nose at people? Is there undue anger? Is there a lack of dependence on you? Are there places I used to depend on you and be so grateful for you, but now I'm kind of just doing it on my own? Lord, what, where is there wickedness in my heart? And understand the tremendous damage that that kind of thing can do in our souls. Jesus talks about this kind of sin some 30 times more than sexual sin. Allow God to convict you, allow him to. Then repent, beg of his grace and forgiveness, and then sing this song from a heart that is free.
missing this part. Yes, Cold and screaming from the mountains. Cold and telling to the masses. He is God. consider what you've done for us, we're overwhelmed. Lord, when we are honest with ourselves, when the blinders have been removed, Lord, we understand our spiritual poverty. We understand our need. We understand the hopelessness of our situation. And yet you, the creator of heaven and earth, the ancient of days, the alpha and omega, that you would be mindful of us is unbelievable. That you would humble yourself, that you would set aside your power and position for us, that you came and lived in poverty for us. You endured rejection even by your own family for us. You were beaten for us. You were scorned for us. You were accused falsely for us. You went to the cross for us. You carried the burden of sin of this world for us. And you died for us. It's unbelievable, Lord. It's so humbling. But then, Lord, you also rose again for us. You ascended into heaven for us. You stand at the right hand of God and advocate for us. You're coming again for us. You're preparing a place for us. And one day, Lord, in the new heaven and the new earth, you will be there with us. Your word says that you will be our God and we will be your people. And yet, Lord, somehow we have this tendency to turn all of that into something where it's as if it's all about us. But it is your goodness, it is your righteousness, it's your work, it's your sacrifice, it's your victory, it's your power, it's your spirit, it's your creation, it's all you. So Lord, please forgive us for the times that we forget that. Grant us repentance and we thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you for the call back to you 
for the understanding of what it looks like to follow you. And now we pray by your spirit that you will do that, that you will give us by your spirit the power to be generous, the power to be loving, the power to be merciful, that your spirit would eradicate pride in our lives so we will not look down on others, but instead act with compassion considering ourselves that we will be better and better examples of you, Jesus. Make us more like you is what we're asking. And we thank you that we know that's a prayer you love to answer. So change us, God, and then use us, Lord, to spread the gospel. I pray, Lord, you would bless those Thanksgiving baskets as they go out. May they be more than just some meal, a stopgap measure to solve temporary hunger. But God, may it be a sign May the people who receive those know Jesus came for me. And may we live and act and carry ourselves in such a way that points them to that truth. So may you bless our time, bless our weekend. What a message, Lord, to share with us as we go into Thanksgiving. Lord, we are so incredibly thankful for you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for showing us mercy. Thank you for loving us. Thank you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, I love you guys. Don't forget, man, go go find out about the gospel community stuff. It's really important. Thanksgiving services Wednesday night. We'll be here worshiping and having communion together. And just if you're not delivering baskets, all of us, let's, let's just pray. Like this is an opportunity to do what this message is even talking about, to reach out to the poor, but in such a way that points them to hope in Christ. May that happen. I love you guys. God bless. Have a great week.